Let's open the Word of God to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. This morning we considered the physical, visible, literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this atmosphere when He shall raise the dead, the wicked and the just, to the day of judgment. And the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. It is called the resurrection of damnation. And the just shall receive everlasting life. It is called the resurrection of life. Those three facts and promises of the gospel are tied together inseparably. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead are all tied together. They happen all at the same time. The Bible considers them simultaneous events, although in logic or with the Lord, they're going to have a momentary precedence to each other. Like when it says the dead in Christ shall be raised first, that doesn't mean there's a seven-year tribulation in between or seven weeks or seven anything. It's just momentary that they're going to be in the clouds because then we're going to be caught up to meet them in the clouds. They're not going to be hanging there for a year or ten years. We're all, it's just an order of logic in its timing to comfort us about our Lord and Savior's care for our relatives who have departed this earth before us. If we are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord, or it will be others speaking of us that way, which is most likely the case. But we will leave our case in the hands of Almighty God, whose choices are absolutely perfect for His glory and our profit. And it is our wisdom to use the times that we have when we sing songs like One Day and the other songs that we have sung this day to encourage our hearts to prepare for the day of our death. That if the Lord doesn't come, that we will be ready to go and meet Him by getting rid of these bodies. Brother Tim was telling me at break time about having to visit a cemetery in the last couple of days and it brought to mind his father's statement that when he would pass a funeral, he would say, it's a good day. And I hope, he said, I hope that somebody will remember about me that I was planted because he loved the Bible explanation of being planted in these bodies because the plant that grows out of it is the new body that we're going to have for eternity in heaven. And it's a glorious thought, and it's 1 Corinthians 15. It's how Paul answers the skeptic that said, well, with what body do we come? And Paul said, thou fool. What we plant in the ground is so different, and I can't help but short repeating it very quickly. If we put one kernel of corn in the ground, one quarter by one quarter of an inch, a cube, and we put it in the ground in other places, not in South Carolina, but in other places, and I don't mean that, please forgive me. In other places, you're going to get a 12-foot stalk of corn with at least one ear on it that has 16 rows of 50 kernels on that cob with a beautiful tassel at the top and a stalk so solid to grow 12 to 14 feet in height that a child couldn't pull it over. That comes from a little kernel of corn that's planted. And that's the apostle described our resurrection in terms like that because we don't have the vocabulary, nor did he, to describe what we're going to be like. Because when John, who knew Jesus intimately, saw him in his glorified body, fell at his feet as dead 
And there's no need of a sun there because the Lamb is the glory of that place. Now, do you understand that Jesus looks a little differently now than He did when He was on earth? And we are going to look just like Him. You're going to, you, you may say to me, but we'll know Him because He's on the white horse. You're wrong again. Do you know what color horse you have? According to Revelation 19, we're all on white horses. Amen. Praise His glorious name. Right. Yes, He's at the front. You just look at the front. And I hope behind him you'll find me fighting a way to get in close between David and Paul. And if there's ten of you fight there fighting to get in there in front of me, that'll be okay too. We just want to be close to our Lord and our Savior. These things are real. And I appreciate hearing testimonies of those who have departed this life who had that confidence before they left. We want to have that confidence before we leave. And one of us could leave today. Praise be to God should be our response. But are we living in such a way that we could meet Him today? And that's how we want to live. We've looked at three things. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and the day of judgment. The day of judgment involves physical bodies, and it involves the dead and the living, all men, not just the righteous, not just the wicked, but all men with their bodies restored will be judged at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be seen in the clouds because it is a visible coming just like he left this earth so those three things the visible physical literal bodily return of the lord jesus christ with a full resurrection of all dead bodies of the wicked and the just of all generations of all time and all of them appearing before god in the day of judgment are three inseparable events that are necessary to the doctrine of christianity so really that's all that you need but i want to give you more That's all that you need. Just hold on to those three things and know some of the verses and say, Preterist, you can weave all these webs of deceit that you want to and you can use all the cunning craftiness that you've been taught to use, but I don't believe any of it because all three things are yet to come because they didn't occur in 70 A.D. They are real. They are literal. They are physical. I'm counting on them. The Bible teaches them. Christianity has believed them, preached them, and sung about them. For 2,000 years, the martyrs gave their lives believing all three things. And on that foundation, you can stand. I believe in the literal, physical, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of all dead bodies, and the day of judgment all occurring at the same time. And it's all yet future. We're futurists when it comes to those three things. And with the futurists, we agree Though both statements are hard for me to cough out of my mouth, but they're true because the Bible says they're yet future. Because they have not happened yet. Then time shall be no more. But until then, we're going to wait on Him. And we're going to believe the Scriptures. And we're going to wait for His Son from heaven like the Thessalonians were in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. These preterists, they deny those three things. Jesus is not coming back. There is no resurrection of the dead. And there is no day of judgment. You say, well, they believe in those things. They just believe that they happened in 70 A.D. But my friends, because they didn't happen in 70 A.D., or because they spiritualize them when they're not spiritual events, they're denying all three events. The logical consequence of the lack of history for any of those events taking place means that they're denying them. They say that they're past, Because there wasn't a real resurrection like the Bible describes. They say the day of judgment is past 
because they don't have a real day of judgment like the Bible describes and the same with the Lord's coming. But they deny other things. They deny the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if you believe that you're in the new heaven and the new earth right now, you've got a problem. But they do. They think you're in the new heaven and new earth because they spiritualize away. Second Peter chapter 3. And though I have some measure of respect for a man named John Owen that was the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell that wrote many good things and wrote the death of death and the death of Christ that was instrumental in my conversion and wrote on the mortification of sin that has blessed a brother in this assembly in recent months, I still must tell you, he ruined Second Peter chapter 3 by spiritualizing it away. The old heaven and the old earth is the Jewish economy, and the new heaven and the new earth is the gospel dispensation that we've had for 2,000 years. And so they spiritualize the whole thing away. That's how they do it. You want to know how they do it? That's how they do it. In 70 A.D., with the destruction of Jerusalem, which included the temple, the altar, the priesthood, and everything that was Old Testament oriented, that was the dissolution and the dissolving with fervent heat of all the elements. And there are verses where I can take you and show you that the Jewish religion was the elements of the world. Now there are verses like that in the Bible. But we rightly divide the word of truth. This event did not happen in 70 AD. Because this event is talking about the physical, material universe. Can we prove it? Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to come back to this passage in days to come, the Lord willing. But right now, I just want to show you they deny this happening. The new heavens and the new earth. See, it's, it says in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Is that the same description he uses of his second coming? Yes. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. What's the noise going to be? The trumpet sound, the Lord shouting, and the things melting and chemically being altered. A great noise in the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? I don't know why the dissolution of the old covenant would motivate me to want to live a holier life. I'm just mentioning that in passing as I read through it. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. There's the five verses that describe everything being burned up and a new heavens and a new earth. It is not strictly a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth do not disappear. They are changed. Remember, I showed you that last Lord's Day. And I'm not going to take the time right now, but it's Psalm 102. It's Hebrews chapter 1. The earth and the the heavens as we know them. Heavens number 1 and heavens number 2. The third heaven isn't altered at all. It's perfect now without any sin in it or any curse of sin on it. That's where God dwells. That's the third heaven where Paul went when he died for a short period of time in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the first five or so verses. It's going to be altered as to its constitution. It's going to be altered as to its characteristics. The curse of sin is going to be pulled off it, so the earth and the heavens are going to operate differently. They're not going to be subject to the laws of thermodynamics and the other laws of this temporal universe as it now stands. 
They will be established on eternal principles upheld by the power of God. Sin is what destroys, is what is destroying the universe. Sin is what's destroying the natural creation around us. And I mean inanimate matter and irrational creatures, which I taught you when we went through Romans 8. They do not see anything physical, anything geological, anything natural, anything material in this passage. They only spiritualize it all away, saying it's the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And so we've been in the new heavens and the new earth by that explanation for 2,000 years. However, they're wrong. Verse 5, this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What chapter of the Bible is that verse referring to? Genesis chapter 1. What kind of an earth and heavens is it referring to? A spiritual economy of the Old Testament? Or the physical earth that God created? Physical earth that God created, and the land, the dry ground, standing out of the water. Verse 6, whereby the world that then was. What world? The world that God created in Genesis chapter 1. The physical, material, geological world. Being overflowed with water, perished. That earth and its life forms were altered. Noah had to bring them out of the ark in order to reestablish life on this planet. Okay, so what are we talking about in verses 5 and 6? The physical, material earth was drowned with water in the days of Noah. It's not talking about the Jewish economy. It's talking about the physical earth. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now... Now listen, when when you're reading in a context like this, and a physical, material world and earth is being described in verses 5 and 6, and then it says, But the heavens and the earth which are now... They're not the ones directly created by God in the sense that That one was overwhelmed by water in the days of Noah. But it's the one that has come after the days of Noah that is being reserved by the power of God unto judgment of fire. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, the same word that brought them into existence, the same word that brought Noah's flood of waters upon them, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's the burning up and the altering of our physical, material, geological world and the first and the second heavens. Because notice it says the heavens and the earth are going to be burned up. In the days of Noah, he couldn't use the word heavens because the waters didn't destroy the heavens. The waters destroyed the earth. Do you notice the difference there? The world being overflowed with water perished. They deny the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to get a new heavens and a new earth. This morning earlier in our first assembly, our brother Jeff read to us Romans 8, 18 through 25, which describes the whole creation groaning and travailing in pain together till now. That's the inanimate matter, and that is the irrational creatures. That's trees and that's pussycats. Listen, death is upon all of them. Death reigns over those things, and it's going to be lifted. That death is caused by the sins of our first father, Adam. And that's going to be lifted because when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, contrary to what preterists believe, He accomplished something. This earth is not going to go on like it is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, as they believe, with sin being committed in it and sinners being born forever and ever and ever and ever as they believe. 
Because see, when you take everything and stick it back into 70 AD, then there is no prophecy for any change to come in the future. It is just going to continue on like this. And it's not going to continue on like this. Thanks be to God. I don't have more time for new heavens and a new earth. I've got enough here to preach for two weeks on the new heavens and the new earth. Because I want the most thorough document that we can possibly put together by what the Lord has shown us about these different points of promise and facts of the gospel that are denied by preterists. It says, according to His promise, if you go back to Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, you will read about the promises of a new heaven and a new earth. If you go to Romans chapter 8, you will read Paul's promise about the renovation of the universe. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. When you look at a little statement like that, that is not a timing statement at all. All God is, all the Lord Jesus Christ was saying in Matthew 24, 35, when He issued those words, were my words are absolutely certain in their fulfillment. Heaven and earth, the most solid and lasting things that you know about, are going to disappear and be changed. But my words are not going to disappear, and they're not going to change. That's all he's saying. But notice, he's saying something. Heaven and earth shall pass away. That's not the old economy. If it was the old economy, then Jesus' words passed away in 70 A.D. Let's go to a new one. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I hope you enjoyed Philippians 3, 20 and 21. I'm not going to turn you there again. But that's where it says that we have our conversation in heaven where we're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven from whence we wait for the Savior who is going to change our vile bodies into His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. Remember that? We're talking about being like Christ. There's no being like Christ in a real way to a preterist because it's all over. You're already as like Christ as you're going to be. Listen, if this is being like Christ, I have some serious problems. I have some serious problems physically and I have some serious problems spiritually until this flesh is away from me. First John chapter 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God in verse 2. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're going to be like Christ. This verse tells us that we're going to see Him and we're going to be just like Him. Because Paul has already taught us that. And we're supposed to know that. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know. We know. These people knew something because John had already taught them And Paul had taught them. The Bible all fits together because there's one author. It's the Holy Spirit. Different writers, but one author. All of it being, all of it teaching us that we're going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have glorified bodies. He's the first fruits of them that slept. We're going to be the harvest. Our bodies are going to be glorified and be entirely different than they have been thus far. More could be said about that, but we won't say it. No destruction of death to a preterist. Preterists say death was destroyed in 70 A.D. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And do you know when it's destroyed? When all bodies are raised from the ground. Because that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. When can you show that death has been destroyed? When can you really finally and formally show it? Raise every single dead body that's ever died. Now that is death destroyed. But that didn't happen in 70 A.D. So there's no destruction of death. 
Because people are going to continue to die eternally to a preterist because we are in the eternal state right now. You say, that is impossible that people believe that. You are wrong. I bring materials for you to read. I'm going to give you so many links that you can retire to read the links of preterists and what they say. They turn the New Testament upside down. They are anti-Christian. They deny these basic facts and promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the eternal state right now, even though there's death happening all around us. Where is the victory of Christ's death? There is only one time when we're going to be able to truly say, then will be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? When are we going to be able to say that finally, fully, truly, officially? When all dead bodies are out of the ground, and not until they're all out of the ground. Didn't happen in 70 AD. You know, there's some big things yet to happen, aren't there? Do you know that there's a few verses on that subject too? that we're going to pass on. There's no millennium. Living and reigning with Christ a thousand years. You say, well, they believe there's a millennium. Well, if you believe that they can jam a thousand years between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., then you can say that they hold to a millennium. No destruction of Satan and his angels because they say Satan has already been destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. Do you find that in your daily experience that Satan is no longer around? I find him as a roaring lion seeking whom may devour, and he leaves all of you alone. He lives only at my house. That's what I find. There's no hope in their gospel. The gospel of the New Testament is full of hope. They take all that hope away. Preterists teach that believers, when they die, their spirits go to heaven. And that unbelievers, when they die, their spirits go to hell. They teach that. But you know what? The Bible... The Bible does not hold out the fact that our spirits go to heaven when we die as the great reward for the children of God. There is so much more than that. There is the gaining and getting and changing and glorifying of these bodies. Because without our bodies, we are naked, lost spirits. And we get these bodies back. Hating the body is Gnosticism. That anything material is weak, wicked, bad. It's a Greek philosophy and it's not worth hearing anything else about. But that is not true in the Bible. Your body is a good thing. We corrupted it, but God is going to uncorrupt it because the second Adam is going to undo what the first Adam did. And we're going to get them back. The Bible is so full of hope and they take that hope away. There's no full sufficiency in the cross. Preterists believe and teach that not until 70 A.D. was the law removed and redemption complete. Our redemption was complete on the cross of Calvary. It did not need 70 A.D. to complete our redemption. The law ended at the cross. The the laws and carnal ordinances were abolished by His death. Colossians chapter 2. You see, but they continued to be enacted. Yeah, by the 40 years of overlapping covenants but they had no value in the sight of God because God had left that house desolate. He had ripped that veil in twain from top to bottom. There was no longer a sacrifice of blood being offered in that place that had anything that meant anything to God for the expiation of sins or covered them or delivered their consciences. 
There's no false efficiency until 70 AD. If you read their language, you would be appalled that they take things that belong to the cross of Calvary and apply it to 70 AD because 70 AD is the end-all event for Bible prophecies to a preterist. And brethren, if they were only the ones that are inconsistent, don't end up being universalists. The consistent preterists end up being universalists because when the whole creation and they make that the rest of humanity, is delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God, what does that sound like to you? When you start spiritualizing Romans chapter 8, you end up with everybody being saved. What would you do with a gospel that sides with the Sadducees? It should be rejected. This is my first of 12 points on why, we don't, why we're not preterists. Because the gospel denies them. And rejects preterism. And I cut it short. But it's good enough. Before we leave, let me introduce argument number two against preterism. And this won't take me months to preach this series. But I will take a little bit of time on number two. Preterism's timing fallacies. Preterism stands or falls, lives or dies, by their timing verses. The first point I gave you was to just reject them. And those who just want something simple, you just hold on to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and the day of judgment as it's described in the Bible. And you can refute preterism by just holding on to those three things and defying them by all the verses that you have that prove that that event has not taken place yet. And I call it a singular event because all three of them are tied together. But now, where do they stand? How do they make up their argument? By timing verses. And their system lives or dies by this timing issue. This is so true, and I mentioned this last Lord's Day, I believe. Their interpretation of Revelation is to jam the entire book, the entire book into 70 AD. The beast is Nero. Who died in about 67 AD. They jammed the entire book of Revelation by Jesuit design into 70 AD, which of course, there's no great whore that's the Roman Catholic Church if that's true, is there? There's no seven headed beast with ten horns with a little horn and a false prophet that would be the Church of Rome or the Papacy of Rome, is there? If you've jammed everything into 70 AD. Well, they do that. Now, in order to do that, they have to make sure that Revelation was written before 70 AD. The church for 2,000 years, and I'm using the church very loosely, the church for 2,000 years has believed that Revelation was written in 96 AD because Irenus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who wrote that book, said that John saw the apocalyptic vision while on the Isle of Patmos, where he had been placed by Domitian at the end of his reign. Domitian died around 96, 98 A.D. We have early statements to that effect. Now, I don't preach anything out of this pulpit that's going to depend on something like that. But I just want you to know, they have to come along and change what every... There's a whole lot of other testimonies from the first and second centuries as well about the date of Revelation being in the reign of Domitian, who was quite a ways after 70 A.D. 
but you got to understand that to a preterist, if Revelation was written after 70 A.D., the entire house of cards, as it applies to the book of Revelation, goes flat on the table. So they go to great pains. This is why timing is so important to them. Just as an example, preterism lives or dies by their timing verses. Jesus did limit some prophecies to the first century. Jesus did say some things like, there'll be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. But that doesn't mean that all the prophecies of the New Testament came in the first century. And this is where we rightly divide the word of truth. Some occurred in 70 AD. Some are yet to occur. Some are occurring. We are historicists. We walk down the road of truth looking at both ditches and saying we're not going to jump into either one. We're not going to jump into the futurist ditch and say all things are future. We're not going to jump into the preterist ditch and say all things are past. To force all prophecies into 70 AD timing, preterists find similar words or descriptions of events where there is no timing given and force them all to be the same event or at the same time. Or they find timing phrases that they apply literally and strictly. I gave you some examples last Lord's Day, but I want to give you some more. In all cases and at all times, they ignore the inspired instruction of Second Peter 3 that there's one thing you ought never to forget, and that's a thousand years with the Lord is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. In all cases and at all times, they disregard the warning of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that the day of Christ is not at hand. Relying on sound bites like shortly, high time, at hand, ready, nigh, and quickly. Let's look at a few. Quickly with me so that we can close this up and, and think on these things and go home and live like resurrected brethren. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. I'm not going to comment on these verses at this time. I just want to show you what they do. This is how they would talk to you. They would just mount their witnesses of timing phrases like that, that has, in verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. And it's high time in verse 11. Let's look at 16.20 of the same epistle. Romans 16.20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8. Hebrews 6 and verse 8. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. 8.13 of Hebrews. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. They just multiply verses like these. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I gave some of these to you last week. I've added a few different ones. James 5, 8. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord <coughs> draweth nigh. 
Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He's not a long ways away. He's before the door. First Peter 1.5 tells us that our eternal inheritance is ready to be revealed. First Peter 4.5 Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. See, he's ready. Look at verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Here's how it works. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we're silent where the Bible is silent. We believe the Bible says what it means and means what it says. These are little Campbellite sound bites that they're taught in the crib. If you take the plain reading of these verses, then it's obvious that to the writer and to the audience, unless the apostles were liars or the apostles were mistaken, they were telling their audience that it was just around the corner. It was tomorrow. It was the next day. It was the next year. It was in their lifetime. It was about to immediately happen. The plain reading of the word is either the apostles were liars or they were mate or they were mistaken because the words are obviously of imminency. And this is called the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. Imminent, when it's spelled like I'm pronouncing it, imminent means about to happen, very close to happening. And it's a doctrine about the coming of Jesus Christ because it is obvious that the New Testament does give the second, re- the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ an imminent flavor to us. And there's reasons for it, and that's why it's going to take me a little time, but this is what we're going to leave with. They want us to take the plain sense of these words, at hand, soon, shortly, nigh, They want us to take the, what was the first thing that we would do as Bible readers? The first thing we would do is we would go to the Old Testament and see how God the Holy Spirit chose to use such words as at hand, nigh, soon, suddenly, quickly, and other words like it. Isn't that what we would do? Because we're told to do that. 1 Corinthians 2.13 tells us comparing spiritual things with spiritual, and that is the words chosen by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.13. So I'm going to give you a few. We're going to have our, we're going to have a few laughs at the expense of the preterist prophets of Baal. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Bible study is, is not all dry and boring, brethren. You have no idea how excited I got in my office, flinging swords around, punching the air, pounding my desk. I don't need an audience to pound my desk. I pound it because I'm thankful to God for showing us His truth. You want the plain reading of some words like soon, nigh, at hand, in prophecies? They say that that means it had to come in their lifetime. That the whole New Testament is structured in its choice of words with words, sound bites, like nigh, at hand, soon, suddenly, quickly, near. That that means it had to happen in the first century, in the lifetimes of the readers of the epistles. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You know, if preterists would start at the right end of the Bible that God wants them to start at, they'd never get into trouble. I want to warn you, when you talk to anybody about Bible prophecy, or when you're thinking about wanting to learn Bible prophecy, start at the left hand of a book. If you haven't been taught in school that you're supposed to read from the left hand in, see me, because I'll help you. Do you want to learn God's Word? Then start at the left hand of your Bible. 
and start reading at Genesis, not at Revelation. The Bible releases progressive revelation over its 66 books. If you start at the right end, you are not going to understand a single thing contained in that book. If you'll start at the left end, there's a lot of it that falls into place. Oh, it makes me angry. I get questions all the time. Will you tell me what the 144,000 are? I'll say, when you tell me who the little horn of Daniel 7 is, I'll tell you. Well, who are the two witnesses? Are they Moses and Elijah? Well, when you tell me who the two horns are that came out of the he-goat that came from the west, I'll think about telling you. I won't answer anyone's questions about Revelation, even the ones that I know the answers to, because they don't deserve them. That's foolish and unlearned questions to approach you and say, who are the two witnesses in Revelation? That is a foolish and unlearned question unless you already know everything that's written in the prophet Daniel. Jesus said, if you'd read the prophet Daniel, you would understand what I'm talking about. Understanding comes in a proper order in the Bible. Yes, it makes me angry. It would save them so much trouble if they'd start at the right end. And it would save them so much trouble if they ever read 1 Corinthians 2.13 to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Daniel chapter 4. I mean, Deuteronomy, excuse me. It starts with D. I was close. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 26. Moses, before he dies, tells Israel, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, Whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it, ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. Did that happen in a hundred years? Two hundred. Three hundred. I'm going to get a sore throat. Anybody got a lozenge? Four hundred. Five hundred. It took a long, long time. Which which scattering among the nations do you want to refer to? Nebuchadnezzar? Do you want to work at five, six hundred years? Or do you want to make it the Roman scattering in 70 AD? Then it's 1,200, 1,400 years. Soon. Ye shall not prolong your days. Why did they get to prolong their days? For the same reason Second Peter chapter 3 prolongs days. Because the long-suffering of God is great. Did it happen to this generation? Since he's using the second person pronouns, ye, ye shall soon be... Did it happen to them? Did it happen to their children? Did it happen to their children's children? Did it happen to their children's children's children? No, 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 no. It happened to many generations hence. You say, that's pretty neat. Don't write it down because you're going to run out of paper before I get done. But you can write it down if you want to. I've already typed it down for you. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Just a few more. Hold on with me. I'm having too much pleasure. I love the Word of God. I wish Jesus Christ would come before I could say amen today. But if He didn't, I know why He didn't. Because He's showing long-suffering to us. And I want to tell you, I didn't get my accounting degree. I got it in finance. But if you want to be an accountant in God's Word, you are told in 2 Peter 3.15, the rules of accounting. There's two different kinds of men that count time. There's scoffers, and there's sanctified, spiritually-minded believers. 
the scoffers count this way. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness. Then we have Second Peter 3, that's Second Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3.15 says, But account. I love the Holy Spirit's choice of words. But account that the long-suffering of God is salvation. When you're doing your counting about how long it's been since Jesus said He would soon come, when you're doing your counting, make sure you account for the long-suffering of God. It's one of... 30 rules I have on the timing fallacies of the preterists. If God will be merciful, we're going to put something on the internet that isn't out there right now. It's not because we're special. It's because God is special. And when I say His providence, you all know what I mean. And when I say His leading, I'm telling you that He led me. And I couldn't leave. And I had a computer widow for two weeks. I love every one of these verses. Deuteronomy 32, 35. To me belongeth vengeance. Moses is describing for Israel how God is going to tear them to shreds if they depart from Him and worship other gods. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them, make haste. For the Lord shall judge His people. Paul quotes that, For the Lord shall judge His people in Hebrews chapter 10. So if we apply it to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what Hebrews chapter 10 in its context is talking about, we have 1,600 years between verse 35 and its fulfillment. Notice verse 35, The day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. 1,600 years? Hello? Yes, I believe it. Do you know why it's spoken that way? Because it kept a sword hanging over every honest-minded, sober, godly Israelite for 1,600 years. Just like it's given hope to Christians for 20 centuries that Jesus is coming quickly. You say, well, he misled us. Not if you read your Bible. See, if you started at Genesis, you'd already know this, wouldn't you? Right. You can't cheat the Lord. Psalm 68. Oh, Lord, thank you. Psalm 68. Did you see those words at hand? Soon? Making haste. It's just rushing. Psalm 68. Verse 31. Princes shall come out of Egypt... Princes shall come out of Egypt, like Apollos, Alexandria. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord, Selah. Beautiful. Foretold Ethiopia, soon stretching out her hands to God, a prophecy of the times of the Messiah, a thousand years away. We, we, we find out that Ethiopian in uh, Acts chapter 8. We find out in Acts chapter 18 the one from Egypt, the prince from Egypt, the mighty man Apollos out of Alexandria. Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. The imminency of the Lord Jesus Christ. After I had finished 
There was an entire day spent on pulling every verse of the Old Testament that I could find that helped describe these sound bites of the preterist. Before I went to bed on a Saturday night last week, I said, Lord, is there a, don't worry about my praying. I have little relationship. I have, a, there's things that I do with the Lord that are between me and Him. Lord, do you have a little token of good that you can show me that there's someone else out there that cares about these things at this level of detail? So I typed into my Google search box for about the 1000th time over the last three weeks and up came Jonathan Edwards with a document on the timing text and the imminency of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) He had my favorite verse from the Old Testament that I had missed. You know, when it's your favorite verse and you're about to go to bed and you've just asked the Lord for a token of good and He shows you your favorite verse as a timing text and Jonathan Edwards had it, what do you think? Listen, I I have times in my office that can't, I know you all touch them in your own offices. But I love the Lord. All in, in Naturally speaking, I should have been a banker. I should have been a garbage collector. But when the Lord shows me little tokens of kindness, I love Him for it. Isaiah 13. For, I'm jumping tracks now. I'm going to come back to that other rail in a moment because I've only got a moment. Isaiah 13, does everyone here know what it's about? It tells you in the first sentence, the burden of Babylon. This is the destruction of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. There isn't a mystery about it. There isn't a secret, mystical, spiritual, figurative thing about it. It tells us in verse 17, when Babylon would be overthrown, it would be overthrown by the Medes. We know exactly when it happened. It happened 483 years before Jesus Christ was baptized by John in the Jordan River according to the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9. It happened in 456 B.C. Babylon was overthrown in one night by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. 200 years before that, actually 250, but I'll just, let's just call it 200. 200, Isaiah 13, 6, Howl ye! Isaiah 13, 6, Howl ye! For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13, 6, 200 years later. If we drop down to verse 22, And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. This is hundreds of years later, because Alexander the Great a couple hundred years later, was still using the city of Babylon. This is when it was finally, fully, officially leveled to the ground and turned into waste space. 500 years. 400 years. But look at what it says in verse 22. Her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. If we would read from the left cover to the right cover, by the time you got to the New Testament, it would never cross your mind that it was a first century fulfillment. You say, that's three. Is there any more? (laughs) Yes. I wouldn't stay at a project all day long unless there was a lot more. But we got to go home. So I'm going to go to the one that Jonathan Edwards gave me. And I want to give credit where credit's due. Because the credit is due to the God of heaven Amen. that showed him the text and for the Lord to help me find it when I had done that same search 
many, many times over the last three to four weeks. Haggai chapter 2. You know, the Lord can put a blinder on you so that you can be studying His Word as diligently as you know how with the fastest tool. Jonathan Edwards never had what I have. You know, he only came up with about three. I have about 40. But in his three is my favorite verse in the Old Testament. Or one of them. Better be careful. Haggai chapter 2, remember? Haggai was a prophet sent by God to stir up the Jews who had been regathered from Babylon and were rebuilding the temple and they were very discouraged because the foundation was so small and they didn't have the gold and silver that Solomon had had when he built the first one. They were very poor. And so they're looking at this little... This, they had staked out the foundation and they were looking at it and they knew that their coffers didn't have anything special in it. And so the Lord tells them in Haggai chapter 2... Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. I'm going to make this temple that Zerubbabel is building greater than the temple that Solomon built. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord, because the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come. He would be the Lamb of God that fulfilled all lambs that had ever been offered. On Solomon may have offered 120,000 lambs, but 120,000 sheep and their blood did not have the efficacy of the Son of God in His transaction on the cross of Calvary. It was in the second temple that peace was made when that veil was rent. Remember, I I love this passage. Because the desire of all nations shall come. Now I get to read the verse that I should read. Verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, here's a prophecy, yet once it is a little while. (laughs) Yet once it is a little while. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. This house is Zerubbabel's temple, second after Solomon's temple. God was going to fill it with glory because the desire of all nations, the Lord Jesus Christ came and graced that second house with His presence. But notice it says, yet once... It is a little while. 400 years. Praise God. If we would read the Bible and follow the rules the Bible gives, comparing spiritual words with spiritual words, we would know at hand and a little while is a little different than you measure a little while. A little while and I'll come by. You might mean 15 minutes. A little while and I'm going to go on vacation. You might mean two weeks. Well, when the Lord says a little while, He might mean 400 years. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us your Bible and helping us sort it out. So what do we believe? We believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. He's going to change your body. There's going to be a judgment. The wicked are going to be cast into the lake of fire. The righteous are going to be invited into heaven. God's going to receive us. He's going to glorify us. He's going to change these vile and corrupt bodies so that we can fully experience everything that He is and all that He has in heaven for us. And we are supposed to remember it, love it, look for it, and purify our lives because we are going to give an account how we have lived. And since He has shown more of His truth to us than most, we will give a greater account for our faithfulness to what He's shown us. May the Lord bless us to be faithful to what is plainly declared in the New Testament and has not yet been fulfilled but it will be fulfilled soon. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.